1600 KIVA, BQ.FM, I'm Eddie Urig on The Rock of Talk. Glad to be here with you for another edition of Straight Talk. With Jeffrey Candelaria, the one and only, bringing all the hard-hitting interviews, questions, and insight that only Jeffrey can provide each and every Saturday afternoon at 1 p.m. right here and only here in the Kiva. Jeffrey, take it away. Thank you again, Eddie, for mentoring me and uh, sponsoring and uh, producing the show and providing this platform we are here with you every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, and I do everything on my power to bring uh, topics, information uh, to you that are relevant to the human condition and not talk about these topics in a cliche way, but uh, really try to dismantle uh, some of these uh, topics that we're aware of but often not talk about. For example, today, after my introduction of Fundaxi, I'm going to be talking to Jade Bach, the Executive Director of Children's Grief Center and Grief Resource Center, because grief is a topic that affects all of us at some points in our lives, and I don't know that we do a good enough job in our society of really openly talking about the construct of what grief really is and how it affects each individual in their own very particular individualized way. Before I introduce our guest For Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, I'd like to uh, let you know again, uh, please, if you're interested in sponsoring the show or being part of the show or being a guest, uh, get a hold of me, Jeffrey Candelaria. My email address is jeffrey.candy77 at gmail.com. Tell your friends about the show, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, every Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. As I do every uh, show, I would like to introduce our upcoming uh, Fundaxi events. Don't forget Fundaxi is a fundraising apparatus. There's no charge to you if you're a fundraising uh, entity. And what we do is we raise awareness and we provide fundraising activity on your behalf. Our next fundraising event brought to you by Fundaxi is uh, this uh, Tuesday, November 23rd. We are partnering with Make-A-Wish and we are actually having a citywide activity and participating fundraising Fundaxi partners to support Make-A-Wish include Pedericos, All Locations, Revel Entertainment Center, Revel Burger, Pizza 9, Cello Grill, uh, Doggo's VIP, Slate Street Billiards and Bar and Grill, say that five times in a row, uh, Jay Gumbo's Cactus Brewing, and Donor Drives. Again, that's going to be all day long, Tuesday, November 23rd. And 20% of your proceeds when you visit any of these restaurant local locations will go back to our friends at Make-A-Wish. All of this, again, brought to you by Fundaxi. If you like information about Fundaxi, get a hold of Rebecca Chavez. Her office number is 505-217-1970, the same year that George Harrison released All Things Must Pass. All right, folks, a little bit of musical trivia. He's my favorite Beatle. My guest is Jade Bach. She is, as I said earlier, the Executive Director of Children's Grief Center and Grief Resource Center. We're going to talk about grief, and we're going to try to bring a a positive, very sober spin to this construct called grief. Welcome to Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria Jade. Thanks so much for having me, Jeffrey. As you said, this is a rough topic. Not a lot of people want to tackle it. It is, and, and we're going to talk about grief from the perspective of children, Mm especially children, and it's, it's particularly salient to me because, as we talked as a prelude to you being on the show, 
you know, I lost my mother when I was nine years of age, and it was a it was a sudden death. All death is sudden, but I mean, it was not a a foreseen uh, situation. In other words, she didn't have an illness, nothing to basically uh, portend her death. It was a car accident. I was there, and this was 1969. I was just a little kid. You know, obviously back then there weren't the kind of resources, and then also you add a cultural what I what I call cultural anthropological dynamic to it. I my grandparents were Stoic Catholics, so now you add that whole layer of cultural relig, religiosity to that, mm-hmm. and no one ever talked about about grief mm-hmm. uh, to me. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not blaming anyone. I, I I chose not to be a victim of it. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the stages of grief and how I probably stayed in the anger stage mm-hmm. <laughs> to be completely direct with you, but I used the anger to be positive and to energize me to move forward. But it's it's such an interesting topic that everybody deals with because death is inevitable. Right. We all face it, but our society doesn't really address it directly. You have, In America, we say, if I die, yeah. not when I die. Right. So you're so right. And the... The inevitability and the universality of death is a very difficult thing for all of us to consider. And in your situation, you know, as a nine-year-old who lost his mother in a car accident, um, those are the exact families that come to the Children's Grief Center. But you're right. Our center is celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. That means for the entire previous millennia, there was no grief center. Yeah. And, you know, Maya Angelou said, when you know better, you do better. And I know your grandparents did the best they could and all the experts at the time, you know, a lot of the prevailing advice um, when when you lost your mom was, you know, don't bring it up. Kids are resilient. Put away the pictures, stiff upper lip, distract them, move forward. And we know now that that can actually be quite detrimental. Yeah. And it's, um, just to quote another one of my heroes, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers said, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And so often it becomes the thing we can't manage because we can't talk about it. Yeah. Nine-year-old boys very typically are incredibly strong and resilient, and they also don't want to cause upheaval or upset their grandparents who no doubt are grieving the loss of their daughter. Yeah. And let's remember the context of the time, mm-hmm. you know, John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, that oh, yeah. whole, and, Rub some dirt and, on it. Right. Yeah. And we grew up on South Broadway. I've talked about it openly and I bring the socioeconomic component because there wasn't a lot of extra revenue to even seek out, even if there were psychologists, yeah. counselors, any of that available so now you add that to the mix other than, and then the, the other the other thing I talk about is the patriarch, the grandfather, you know, the masculinity piece, mm-hmm. which I still personify. Sure. And I chose to move into that space, the masculinity kind of tough space, as a way of dealing with grief because that vacuum, my mother's absence was there. Mm-hmm. And you, you, can sur- you can surmise and talk about this. When people die... From the kid's perspective, the vacuum is there. What do they do with that vacuum, right? Exactly. And most children tend to fill in the blank spaces with self-blame and self-punishment. 
if I had been a better kid, this wouldn't have happened in my family. If I had only fill in the blank, if I had taken longer to get ready, if I had not gone to school that day, if I had not forgotten my backpack. I once had a sixth grade girl tell me if I had gotten better grades, my dad wouldn't have had that heart attack. Filling in that vacuum, filling in the blanks and the stories, the conversation and the talking about it generally mean generally means bereaved kids are they blame themselves and they think that they could have somehow controlled the situation differently. And that kind of guilt and um you know, self-deprecation can follow you your entire life. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't know if anybody actually directly said this to you, but I know that at the time, you know, sort of common advice probably would have been, son, you're the man of the house now. It's time to, you know, step forward. Don't upset your grandparents. Yep. And um, we at the Children's Grief Center, um, you also mentioned the socioeconomic, socioeconomic um, barriers to perhaps receiving additional services had they existed. Um, at the Children's Grief Center, those barriers, are we know, are still there. Um, finances are uncertain after a death. If you're a family that's had to unexpectedly pay for a funeral or medical expenses or even lost a car because of the car accident that killed your person, um, you're in a really tough financial spot. Yeah. Emotionally and economically, you're stretched. So we never charge for services. For 20 years, everything that we've done for bereaved children and families has been free, and that's through the grace of the community. Yeah, We really appreciate that. Again, on Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria, we're with you every Saturday, 1 to 2 p.m. We talk about these topics openly uh, and not in a platitude, cliche kind of way, not superficial. We really try to dismantle, dissect these difficult conversations, and I'm willing to expose my own scenario as an example because it's, it's almost a case study. Mm-hmm. To what you probably see fairly, fairly uh, regularly at mm-hmm. uh, at the as the executive director. Again, my guest Jade Bach, executive director, Children's Grief Center and Grief Resource Center. And again, we're talking about grief, and we're kind of using me as an example, not because I'm self-aggrandizing my ego. I'm doing it because I think I'm an interesting case study. And to your point, my grandparents, stoic, uh, stoic Catholics, with not a whole lot of uh, sophisticated education. No offense said absolutely nothing to me, mm-hmm. zero, nothing. So it was, it was probably, you know, there's a traditional grief calculus says there's five stages, denial, bargaining, depression, anger, acceptance. That's one theory. They were in denial and sure. shock, yeah. and they never really removed themselves from that space. Mm-hmm. Acceptance never took place, and it never took place for me. Mm-hmm. I have never really properly engaged in and, and manifested bereavement like I should mm-hmm. have or yeah. still could. Well, you so know, maybe you can help me. I don't <laughs> know. I, I'm I, not trying to be flippant about it either. I'm just saying. I get it. You know, and, and one thing I know is that it's never too late, and it's never too late to heal those um, hurting and traumatized parts of ourselves. Um, they, we carry them with us. Uh, they are a part of our everyday, and it's never too late to work on that. I know... Um, in my own experience, I was 17 when my father was killed in an accident at work, and that changed the trajectory of my life. It wasn't until I was an adult, um, you know, in my late 20s, that I even learned that there was such a thing as a children's grief center. And when I took the training to become a volunteer um, almost 20 years ago now, I was shocked 
sitting in that training, hearing the story of my experience and my family basically told back to me. And then as I began volunteering, feeling a little bit overwhelmed and like, well, I'm not really sure if I'm the right person for this job, but I'm going to do my best. One of the kind of surprising outcomes of that was how that experience of facilitating grief groups for young people and adults. My very first group that I was assigned to was a group of women who'd lost their husbands to suicide. And I certainly felt like, what can I do here to help this situation? But one of the surprising outcomes was how much that experience of volunteering and facilitating those groups actually helped me heal some of those hurting parts in my own heart and helped me understand my mother, her response, our society, their response to grieving kids in a much more compassionate way. And so that was my experience as a volunteer, and I have heard it so often from other volunteers that they've had the same kind of realization, that being around these support groups, even though you think you're there to help, actually surprisingly help you quite a bit too with um, feeling recognized and and like you're not alone. Yep. And that's what our support group participants say. I'm not the only one. Yeah, there's an osmosis effect there. No, I, I completely get that because I've searched, you know, I just completed an historical novel, Toro, The Naked Bull. It's on Amazon. Please uh, please get it. And it's really a tribute to my grandfather who did everything in his power to step into that, that role of mm. parenting mm. because my grandparents were... Very dysfunctional, and I, I talk about it openly. I'm not judging them, but it, they had a very dysfunctional relationship, and it was very difficult to view that. But my grandfather did everything his power vis-a-vis his work ethic mm. and him sending me to really good schools, you know, private mm-hmm. schools, which was a real sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that was compensation, whatever, but he really did everything in his power to fill into some of that vacuum but that whole emotional piece that we're going to continue to talk about, we're talking about grief with Jade Bach, the emotional piece about my mother's death was t- taboo mm-hmm. in our family. Yeah. So we, we dealt with the functionality of it. You know, we have to do certain things, mm-hmm. you know, get rid of her clothes, this and that, whatever the hell that is, mm-hmm. the prosaicness of it, mm-hmm. but the emotional component. So in your world, Let's do a couple of things. Let's define grief, which we probably could have done at the outset. I apologize. <laughs> let's define grief, and let's talk about some common themes sure. that you see. And let's start with the basic rudiments. Let's, let's define grief. So uh, grief, bereavement, and mourning are, are three different aspects of how we um, respond to the loss of something or someone important to us. When I'm talking to children, which is most of the time, um, I like to define grief as the feelings you feel when you lose someone or something that's important to you. And so that encompasses all the feelings, right? There's the ones you might expect, sorrow, sadness, and then there are other feelings. Maybe there's relief if it was an extended illness. Um, if the person had a lot of struggles and was unpredictable in and out of your life, abusive, maybe there's a little bit of relief. That doesn't mean you don't grieve them and you don't miss them and you don't wish that they were still here sure. or you wish things were different. Sure. Mourning is how a culture responds to that grief. You know, you talk about the Catholic Church. There's rosaries. There's um, the burial service. In New Mexico, we have so many rich cultures that have their own special way of responding to a death in the family. And 
Then bereavement itself, it comes from the root word meaning to be shorn off or torn away. And the bereavement itself is the objective act of the loss. Um, it is the death. It is, um, it is the absence of, of the person that was everything to you. We know statistically in most families, the loss of a mother is um, the hardest loss that a family can experience. At the Children's Grief Center, the vast majority of the families that come to us do so after the death of a parent. Most of those families have actually lost a father. The vast majority of the families that we serve are uh, women who've lost their partner, their husband, or their ex-husband, and they're coming to the grief center with two or three children, and they're struggling to care for their own grief and then raise these kids who are at different places. You know, a five-year-old understands and responds to death differently than a 10-year-old, differently than a 15-year-old. And that's super complicated. It is. Um, And so, I mean, we understand that at the Grief Center. That's one reason why we have different age and stage support groups um, for different members of the same family. So everybody gets their own place to tell their own story. And we may... We are the only grief center in central New Mexico. We've got a big job here. But there are programs like this around the country. And I know you have listeners far and wide. And I just want to mention that if anybody is looking for support, whether you are a child or an adult, whether the death was last week or last decade, you can contact us and we will put you in touch with the closest resource to wherever you are. And um, it's, like I said, it's never too late to get help. Straight talk with Jeffrey Candelier. We're talking about uh, grief, uh, and we're talking to Jade Bach. She's the executive director of Children's Grief Center and Grief, grief Resource Center here in Albuquerque. What is your contact information? So our website is childrensgrief.org, and our phone number is 505-323-0478. So I'd like to dismantle death in this way from the kid's perspective. Mm-hmm. Anticipated death, my mother has cancer, looks mm-hmm. like she's declining. So mm-hmm. you know, even a five-year-old can see mm-hmm. the degradation of mom yeah. in this case yeah. or dad. Or versus in my case study, my mother, 29, vibrant, uh, one day she's alive, five minutes later, dead, car wreck, blood mm-hmm. everywhere. I don't want to be, you know, uh, and grotesque you were, or you anything. Were there. But, I mean, I was right there on the scene. And I just remember people looking down upon us. That's why when I drive by a, an accident on the freeway, I absolutely, and I'm, I don't like to use the word never because I don't like absolute terms, I never look at an accident. Because that, that sort of like freak show aspect of looking at mm. something morbid yeah. is something that repulses me. So I, I really don't like to look at accidents or you know, scenes of the crime kind of thing on a street in Albuquerque or Chicago. I will not do that because that's the one thing I remember more than anything else. Mm-hmm. I remember my mother there lying with, you know, and I'm not trying to be grotesque. I'm just telling no. you what I saw. I saw blood and mud, mud in her in her once beautiful reddish brown hair. But so I knew she was dead right off. I knew that. But I just saw people looking at us. Staring down at us because mm. it happened on the interstate by Winrock Center, and I'm not ashamed or that uh, reticent about talking about it. And and I mm-hmm. think that death absolutely changed the trajectory of how I see life. I'm very direct. Mm-hmm. I like to deal with life as as it, in a very sober, pragmatic way. Mm-hmm. And I know other people that I've talked to that face those kinds of things. 
and they're opposite me. They're extremely empathetic. They're extremely emotional about these things. They don't like to, to talk about the depths of a difficult issue. I'm just the opposite. I absolutely can talk about almost anything in a very practical, sober way. I just, but, but my point is, I saw that the, the folks just, you know, glaring right. at us, just yeah. staring at us. I'm the and same it, way, Jeffrey. It was, it, it was disgusting to me to yeah. see that. I don't, I deliberately do not look at a scene as I'm driving by out of respect. But I think what you and I have that's different than most people is we have experience. And we don't have that sense of curiosity um, yeah. that others may have. You and I have lived it. Yeah. And, and that's um, a significant difference, but we're part of a very small percentage of the population. Um, nationally, about 5% of kids will lose a parent or sibling before the age of 18. So In it's, New Mexico, so, so it's, it's much higher. So it's a pretty small percentage, but it's still a significant. It's five percent nationally. What mm-hmm. is it in New Mexico, Jay? In New Mexico, it's we're actually second in the country for childhood bereavement. So one in ten kids in New Mexico will experience the death of a parent or a sibling before the age of eighteen. Wow. So um, we have a much higher rate of deaths, and um, we what you're describing as well, um, what you saw and what you experienced. It's a it's a visual and a physical trauma, and we have kids coming to our program, and one of the things that we do with kids who've had the same experience you had um, is we see over and over again that they have um, a reaction to first responders, like hearing sirens will make their heart race. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing those flashing lights yeah. um, can push them into an anxiety attack. And so we actually have dress-up materials that are firefighter gear and first responder gear and right now we're renovating um, a building to be the new home of the children's grief center will be much larger much more accessible will be on carlisle in between comanche and montgomery and one of the special rooms we're going to have in that center is a hospital room yeah because a lot of families a lot of kids said goodbye or had the opportunity to say goodbye in a hospital room but didn't really understand what was happening and so we're going to have a room that is going to be decked out as if it were a hospital room with real equipment, with a hospital bed that they can touch and they can play with and they can tell their story. Yeah. Because play is the work of a grieving child. And part of that reenactment, telling that story in just blow-by-blow blow detail is how you help to integrate the trauma. And no one ever lets us tell our story. Yeah. You know, if you tell that story, you know, going back to school in, in the third or fourth grade, um, telling that story to even the helpers in your life, uh, leaders of the church or teachers, they're going to shut it down because it's, it's too uncomfortable for them. Absolutely. You know, it's too much for them. They don't want, oh, you know, but, you know, your mom's in a better place now. She's not suffering anymore. Yeah. At least fill in the blank. We yeah. say no helpful statement ever started with that least. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like what you said about not having platitudes. We definitely have the same mindset at the Children's Grief Center. We have a no platitude attitude, yeah, I call I, it. I, I, and, you know, sometimes it just sucks. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you can't overcome it. And yeah. I want to say something about what you shared about anger. Um, anger, my favorite definition of anger is it's a special kind of wanting. When we're angry, we want something to be different. That has helped me as a mother of two boys <laughs> who are adults now, but raising them, let me tell you, okay, they just want something to be different. Um, anger is a kind of a go-to um, okay emotion for boys to have, whereas girls, 
it's not okay for them to be angry, yeah. right? So they're more likely to be the sad and sorrowful expression of grief. Uh, and I'm just, I'm speaking in broad strokes, you know, course, and, um, you know, broadly generalizing. But we know with men um, who were bereaved as children that um, the the three A's of anger, action, and addiction are the three ways that they are more likely to um, respond to the loss of their loved one. I would insert in my particular case, I'm using me as a case study so our listeners can grasp that, you know, this real event happened. It did. And kind of dismantle how it kind of looks, almost as de- like demantling a formula on a chalkboard, mm-hmm. a calculus, if you will. I used the word achievement, though. I wanted to achieve things in that space using my anger. That's why I was always fascinated with Christian Bale's version of Batman, because his mm-hmm. interpretation was, I'm ticked off, my parents died. So I'm going to use my anger to defeat crime. Mm-hmm. So I used my anger, still do to this day, to drive me to achieve things. And it's mostly positive. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not. But so I chose very carefully to use that anger and orchestrate it and express it by achieving things. Mm-hmm. And I drive my wife crazy because I'm, two days ago, and I'm not trying to impress her, but I'm washing walls. I'm washing walls. Yeah. Because I have so much energy and anybody who knows me, so it's that anger that's always driving me. But mm-hmm. instead of doing evil things, and I'm not saying I'm this great guy because I'm not, I try to do positive things with that anger. Achievement would be yeah. an insertion or an expression mm-hmm. as to how I chose to manifest not being caught in that yes. little space. I call that action. Okay, there you so go. So yeah. the, um, yeah, uh, you know, if if there's, you know, how many times have we seen the example of a tragedy that is then followed by um, people taking action? I'm going to pass legislation to make sure this never happens again. Yeah. I'm going to um, make sure that nobody has to go through what I went through. I'm going to make things different or better. Amber and alert. you're right. The Amber Alert. Amber Alert. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of the good things that have come to pass actually came out of a tragic event. Yeah. But um, that action is really important. And you're right. So. We know all about post-traumatic stress and all the horrible outcomes that can happen after an adverse childhood experience, like the death of a parent as a child. Yeah. But there's actually this other way that things can go, and that's called post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth, it, you know, one of the characteristics is that there is a, a changed sense of priorities. You know, you talked about, you know, you get right to the point. Um, time is short. You're, you're, you're action and achievement oriented. You, you use your powers for good, Jeffrey. You use your, um, your platform for Mostly. good. Mostly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, you know, even the, the honoring of your, your story and your grandfather's story in the historical novel that you just released. I mean, um, I would say that all of those things are examples of post-traumatic growth. And sometimes... Like Batman, and I drive my kids nuts because whenever we're watching movies like like Batman or even the new James Bond that just came out, yeah. my perspective is, well, if Batman had had a children's grief center, that would have all been different. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a good point. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in the in the most recent James Bond movie, there's a point where he's talking to the villain and he's and they're both sharing about how they lost their parents as children. And yeah. that's why they have such a difficulty with relationships and yeah. life as adults. I mean, they actually say that in the movie. So there, 
we know all about the bad ways or the rough things that can happen or the rough outcomes that you can um, experience as a bereaved kid. But there are also really amazing things. If you can get to the other side of that pain of that loss, yeah. there are amazing things that are out there. My guest is Jade Bach, Executive Director of Children's Grief Center and Grief Resource Center. We've been talking about it. We'll continue to talk about what grief is, particularly from a child's perspective. The other, the other aspect of death that you deal with is, unlike my mother, you know, she's alive one minute, dead the next, mm. anticipated or, you know, mm. we, well, we can portend, you know, oh, my gosh, my mother, you know, I'm, I'm six years old. I find out my father yeah. has terminal cancer. And you see that he's declining, even for, you know, a small child. They, obviously, they see the physicality, the degradation of that. Yeah. So how is that a little different? That's such a good question, and it's such a deep subject. You know, the difference between what we call an anticipated or a sudden death. And, you know, there's an expression in hospice work where they say there's no such thing as an anticipated death because even when we have a terminal diagnosis and we know it's stage four and we know that we're coming to the last days, um, it, that death can still feel like a shock to the family. They can still say, I wasn't ready. We didn't have enough time. But in, from a child's perspective, what's the difference between the experience of an anticipated death or a sudden traumatic death? I actually was facilitating a um, support group for uh, tweens. These are people um, between the ages of 11 and 13. And the, the group was almost evenly split between those two scenarios anticipated versus sudden. And they had a really interesting conversation about it. The, the kids who had lost their loved one suddenly said, you know what, you had it so much better because you had the chance to say goodbye. You knew that this was coming and you could make your amends. You could have those conversations. And the kids with the anticipated death said to the traumatically bereaved kids, they said, you didn't have to watch your loved one suffer. Yeah. You didn't see your mother, you know, crying her eyes out night after night after night. Yep. You, you didn't have the loss of, you know, attention and time and resources. You didn't have your home turned into a hospital bed or a hospital room. And so, you know, they, they continued on this conversation of, you know, who had it worse? You know, which is harder? And at the end of that hour and 15 minutes, they came to the consensus that there is no better way to die and that there are pluses and minuses around both anticipated and sudden losses. And in the end, it's what you make of that experience and how you integrate that trauma into the rest of your life. And um, I'll never forget that conversation. It was a privilege for me as a volunteer to witness it. Yeah, certainly I can't judge either interpretation of the way people process a death, either sudden or a, or something that is more anticipated. I call it the James Dean Merrill Monroe effect. We will always remember James Dean and Merrill Monroe at the apex of their heights of beauty yeah. and power because they didn't degrade, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we saw Elvis kind of degrade as, as an example. Some think and, they're still seeing Elvis degrade. Well, I, I know, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's 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 almost like because I liked Elvis. I preferred the seventies Elvis or the sixties Elvis sure. to the seventies Elvis. But the point is, you see the the apex of Elvis and then kind of a degradation. Yeah. I'm not trying to be flippant again. I'm just saying this this is a process. This whole thing of the life cycle well, and all of that. And you know, another thing too is when you're bereaved as a child and you lose that parent, like you're describing, at the apex of their health and their life, 
they can no longer do wrong. So as you go forward and you grow up and maybe you have other people who are raising you, other adults in your life, you get to know them in a different way as an adult, as a peer. But with a parent who's gone, in a sense, they're frozen in amber as they were. And and so we can often um, kind of, you know, memorialize them as as perfect beings. um, And and we will never know what they were really like as adults. And actually, that could be post-positive syndrome, whatever you termed post, it. Tra- it's post-traumatic growth, that PTD. Can be, that can be for a child who's 8, 9, 10, lose a mom, a dad, at the, at the zenith of their powers. That could actually perhaps provide, from a psychological perspective, an inspirational uh, mm-hmm. ideal way of remembering my dad. Oh, at absolutely. the heights of his powers. Absolutely. So, so in a sense, if we can embrace some of that, that could be an inspirational ideal to motivate maybe that child the rest of his or her life. Who knows? Well, if I can share a little story about a family here in Corrales, and um, I think this is a public story, so I think it's okay for me to share. But this is the Cook family, and they, um, three children and an amazing mother named Maureen, who is one of my heroes. She's a wonderful woman in this world. Um, they lost their father very suddenly, and that was five years ago. He actually disappeared um, uh, while he was summiting a 14er in Colorado, and to this day he's not been found. So they created a um, charity called Dave Gives Back in, in honor of Dave, their dad, her husband that they lost. And they listed in this, um, you know, on their website and on these T-shirts they made his, like, eight priorities in life. And, um, you know, being a good father, being a good husband, uh, having daily PT, I remember that was one of his priorities. And they are raising funds to um, support all of the search and rescue teams um, that helped to, that continue actually to search for his remains and, ha- and are the folks that we call whenever we lose a hiker or somebody um, out in the wilderness. I think that's a beautiful example of a family taking a horrible situation, a loss that um, that they will always carry with them, but memorializing the beautiful things and the really inspiring things about that man and keeping yeah. that alive. You know, they, there's an expression, I'm not sure where it came from, but it, it says that um, there are two times when we die. There's the time when your heart stops beating, and then there's the last time that someone says your name. Wow. That's, that's really poignant. Yeah. That's poignant. It's interesting, and you know there is there is a God, even though I'm not, I don't subscribe to a particular religion. But the call that came to my phone prior to the taping of this show, yeah, serendipitous, whatever you call it, divine, was a woman who I do business with, but I never talked to her. It was an assistant. Her name was Shirley. My mother's name was Shirley. Oh my goodness! Isn't that unbelievable? And that's not a common name anymore. No. So. I don't know what that means, folks, but this is Straight Talk with Jeffrey Kendall. I l- literally, hmm. about 20 minutes before I arrived, I received a call from a person named Shirley. <laughs> Isn't that, it's almost chilling. It is. And I'm not trying to be Twilight Zone-ish. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah, so, <laughs> I know. <laughs> that's and... why I call it Straight Talk, because I'm willing to just bring it right forth, right? Um, I also want to talk a little bit about children who lose mother or dad. And for me, the most difficult day of the year for maybe the, the three years that 
post-dated her death because ultimately I became a, you know, I'm a good-looking teenager, so everything else changed. But but <laughs> life, I would say fourth, life got fifth, interesting. Oh, I'm a confident guy. <laughs> but fifth, sixth grade, no, excuse me, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, the most difficult year or day of the year was Mother's Day. Correct. Yeah. Because the cruelty of children, including I was cruel too, so I'm not saying I wasn't, but kids would like, oh, ah. your, your mother's dead. Oh, your mother's dead. Laugh. And kids were making things for their mother. Yeah. And even though I had a grandma, and I'm not being pathetic because I'm not a victim. I'm just telling you, it was the most yeah. difficult day of the year. Do you experience that at the Grief Center with little kids, whether it's Father's oh. Day and it's Mom's Day? I'm so glad you brought that up. You know, we talk about milestones and special days, and they can really come for you in a really hard way. So Mother's Day, it's in May. It's, uh, it always falls during the school year. And as you describe, schools want to help make something nice for that mother. And if you're the kid in the class, now let's remember New Mexico, one in 10 kids is going to lose a parent before the age of 18. Yeah. So you can imagine in our classrooms that have 20 to 25 kids in them, there's at least one kid in there. Um, who has lost a parent, probably, and it could be a mom, right? Um, those days are incredibly difficult. The cruelty of children, whether it is intentional or oblivious, is a fact. Um, I want to share a story with you. This is a, an old story. This, is prob- this probably happened about 10 years ago, but I'm going to share the story, and then I'm going to follow it up with my advice, okay? My best practices for parents and guardians and teachers and school counselors and everybody out there. So there was a a boy, he was in middle school, and his mother had died of breast cancer, and she was his only parent. So this was, as we know, an anticipated death. His mother had arranged for his grandparents, her parents here in Albuquerque, to become his guardians. So he goes through this horrible loss of his mother, and then he moves to Albuquerque and is living in the home of his grandparents. Now, his grandparents, who meant well, right? They love him. They want to support him. He said, I just don't want anybody at school to know what happened. Please don't tell anybody at school. You know, he knows. You know, kids are jerks, right? And they're going to go after the wounded member of the pack, right? So his grandparents say, okay, kid, you got it. We're not going to tell anybody. But they did take him to the Children's Grief Center. And so I had the honor of being his facilitator and actually hearing this story. Um, This is the week before Mother's Day. Now, nobody in his class knows that his mother has died. They're making a Mother's Day card for their moms. And he doesn't know what to do. Do I make it? Do Do I pretend to make one? Do I make it for my grandma? Do I? I mean, what do I do? So he made the card. And he was so overcome with emotion and anger, you know, that special kind of wanting that he went to the bathroom and he uh, ripped the towel dispenser off the wall. Well, now he's in trouble. Now he's in the principal's office. Now he's got a smackdown coming his way. And that night, fortunately, it was grief group. And so he's sharing this story in grief group. I, as a mother, (laughs) you know, I was like, well, in my head, I'm thinking, well, I want to go right to that school and I want to tell them what for, you know, yeah. you will not punish this kid. You will support him. But the other kids in that group, they listened to that story. They shook their heads and they said, man, that teacher's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they completely supported him uh-huh. in his feelings and where he was. And that's exactly what he needed at the time. 
But from that event and, and, you know, experiences that you've shared and, and that all of our kids have shared, our professional recommendation is that the school needs to know. And so whether you're a guardian raising a grieving kid, you're, you're a bereaved parent yourself, I know this is really hard, but you need to make an appointment with that school counselor, sit down with them, describe what happened in the family, and then make a plan to deal with those milestones and special days. There's a million of them. There's donuts for dads. There's muffins for moms. There's, you know, and it's, our goal is not to eliminate triggers. You know, triggers are events that occur that kind of bring up a, a point in our life where we have some pain. We have some healing still to do. Life is not about preventing triggers. They are out there. Okay. Yeah. Your call today before the show started from a woman named Shirley. That could be a trigger. You know, they're out there. Our goal is to say, you know what? Sometimes these things happen that activate this pain in me. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to handle it in this way. Yeah. And so it starts with acknowledgement, and then it starts with developing a plan and knowing that we are strong enough to move through it. My guest is Jade Bach. She is the Executive Director of Children's Grief Center and Grief Resource Center. We've been talking about grief, and I've been exposing you know, my situation because I think it, it's, it's, a, it's an example of a, a case study, if you will, that others maybe have experienced, and that's why I'm expressing it uh, very uh, unapologetically and very self-disclosively. Uh, had I been a parent, because I'm a very practical guy, and I'm not a parent, that's probably a function of what happened with my mom, I don't know, but uh, I'd, I'd go to the counselor and the teacher and say, you know, he, yeah. his, his mother died, it's Mother's Day, you do the math, yeah. be sensitive <laughs> to that, because yeah. I don't want to be you know, condescending, but teacher, you know, all the kids are going to make stuff, mm-hmm. you don't have a mom, be aware it's going to be confusing for him, confounding, difficult. Yeah. So whatever that means, be sensitive that his mother's not alive mm-hmm. and other kids are making stuff for their mom. And teachers have those skills. You know, teachers understand children and their developmental stages. Absolutely. You know, if they have the information about what's going on in the household, they can respond to that with empathy and support. Yeah. You know, I also want to just add in... Um, Thinking about that young boy uh, who ripped the paper towel dispenser off the wall and his grandparents, you know, his grandparents, again, they were trying to be as supportive and kind to him as they could after everything he had gone through, losing his mother, losing his community, moving to New Mexico where he didn't know anybody, trying to start over again, confused, lost, sad, grieving. It's important that grieving kids um, have structure and, and boundaries. And, you know, sometimes the grownups in their lives think, oh, you know, they had this bad thing happen to them. We're not going to make them do homework or make their bed or the chores or go to bed on time or whatever that was. And again, I understand that that is an impulse out of caring and love. But what grieving kids actually need more than ever is structure, boundaries, routine. They need to know what to expect. Their whole world has been turned upside down. They have had a they have had an early education and how hard life can be. Um, so, in, you know, imposing that routine and those expectations, yes, this bad thing happened. This does not mean that we cannot, you know, um, still be, uh, uh, sh- still show up for life. Okay? Yeah, I it's call important. it functionality. I, I really think my, my grandparents, I'm not blaming them, I'm just telling you what happened. They're, the functionality, the routine that we had, completely broke down. And we didn't recapture it. I'm not blaming them. I'm just telling what happened. So I myself, Jeffrey, little Jeffrey, I created structure mm-hmm. and mechanisms of action mm-hmm. that I still are still with me today mm-hmm. because the vacuum is there. Physics 
hates a vacuum. People yep. will always fill in something that's not there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, according to one theory with grief, there's denial, bargaining, depression, anger, and then ultimately acceptance. I don't agree with all of this, but I think there's some validity to it. I don't also understand what the word closure means. We always hear that word closure, yeah. and I'm not sure what that means. Uh, what is your contact information again, Jade? Thank you, Jeffrey. So at the Children's Grief Center and the Grief Resource Center of New Mexico, you can find us at childrensgrief.org. You can also give us a call at 505-323-0478. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Tell your friends to tune in every Saturday, 1 to 2 p.m., 1600 Kiva a.m. There is not another show like this in New Mexico. I promise you, it does not happen. Another manifestation of what I experienced, and I believe there there's some common theme here for you. I'd like you to talk about this. I felt shame as a child for not mm-hmm. having a mother. Mm-hmm. Is that a theme that some kids ever face? Ever is yeah. a long time. But do kids experience some of that? Because that was a big deal for me. Oh, I was boy. ashamed not to have a mom. It's a huge deal. You're and, and you're really putting your finger on something that's incredibly painful and complicated. So in this society that we live in, when bad things only happen to bad people, if a bad thing happens in your family, who's the bad person? Yeah. Is it you? Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, children can be really creative at filling in the void of the conversation with, you know, whatever happened, their person is gone. If they had only done something differently, they could have saved them or they, their person would still be here. And I, I think that that, um, that does cause us a lot of guilt and shame. And also, that's a way of controlling the uncontrollable. Yeah. If I can say it's my fault. I could have done something different to save her, then maybe the world isn't as out of control or um, random as it might seem. And so, strangely, that shame and that guilt that we put upon ourselves and that we carry forever, I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be so good so nobody ever dies again. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be so good so nothing bad ever happens to my family again. That's our attempt to control things. I just went through, I just experienced, and remember the context with when, with when that happened, right? 1970-ish. Yeah. So you had the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family, all these idealistic TV shows where you had yeah. mostly, you know, mostly white, whatever that means, people with, with idealistic uh, families. Right. So now, at least in a more contemporary age, there are other TV shows that express, you know, one parent, you know, kind mm-hmm. of things. But back then it was, and I'm not, again, trying to be a victim. I'm just saying it was especially difficult yeah. because those ideals were were espoused and ubiquitous all through our mainstream culture mm-hmm. and not having a mom. I think the Partridge family, there was a, an absence of a father. That's right. So maybe that's why I like that show yeah. more than the Brady Bunch. But the shame thing. The other thing I want to talk about, we've got about 12 minutes left, is holidays. Thank and you. Christmas, yeah, you know, Father's Day, we've talked about Easter, Mother's Day. So grief, children, holidays. Yeah. So all of us have um, expectations around what the holiday should mean. And as you described, um, we have this image in our head that is pretty unrealistic of what holidays should be. Family togetherness, you know, um, amazing food and beautiful decorations and gifts 
Um, I myself have never had a picture perfect holiday, Um, but I know we're always striving for that ideal that does not really exist. Now, when somebody dies in the family, everything's upside down. And what if the person who died is the person who made the special meal or baked the cookies or made sure that everybody had a stocking? And um, holidays can really show the differences in how different people in the same family are grieving. So according to your age and your stage and your relationship with the person who died, you're going to have a different experience of grieving their loss. And that's even more complicated around the families. And my heart goes out to all the um, parents out there who are and the guardians who are grieving themselves and they still have to like somehow pull it together to put on some kind of family holiday for these um, people who are all in a different place in their emotional pain. One thing that we're doing, and it's actually happening right now, Saturday the 20th, um, is a Grief in the Holidays workshop, and we do that every year. And so we have a lot of experience and resources about how to make the holidays less terrible after the death of a loved one. And it all starts with planning. It all starts with having a conversation. I'm going to go back to, you know, Mr. Rogers, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. If we can sit down as a family and talk about, hey, guys, What are we going to do this year? What's going to be different this year? What do we want to keep from our traditions and what do we want to let go? And knowing that the changes we make this year for this particular set of holidays um, doesn't have to be the way we do it every year. It's just that we're going to come together as a family. We're going to make a plan for what is meaningful to us. And how are we going to include the person who's gone? How are we going to honor them? You know, Jade, it's been a pleasure. We only have actually about four minutes to go. I can't believe how quickly this is unfurled. I'll have to have you back. Thank you. Your contact information and, and briefly just a couple of the things that you provide. I yes. know you have support groups, grief uh, resource library, yes. volunteer opportunities, yes. professional training, special workshops, contact information again. Yeah, so um, you can find us at childrensgrief.org and our phone number 505-323-0478. So we are building this um, building that we're calling the Center for Hope and Healing on Carlisle in Albuquerque between Comanche and Montgomery. And we will have a new volunteer training in January, and we need volunteers over the age of 21, um, at least a year out from their own, um, from a significant death in their own life. Now, having a significant death is not a requirement to be a volunteer, but as you and I know, um, we tend to be more attracted to that kind of topic because we're not scared, Jeffrey. Yeah. We're not scared of it. But um, if you can be a compassionate listener and if you can play and if you can um, dedicate a year of your life to serving grieving kids, and that is committing to being at every support group two times per month from September through May, you can be a volunteer at the Grief Center. So please get in touch with us, Children's Grief Center of New Mexico. We've still got about three minutes to go, and parents talking openly about death. Yeah, hard, very hard. And, you know, parents say to me all the time, I'm afraid, but if I bring it up and if I start crying, I will never stop. I assure you, you will. Parents um, say, you know, I just don't want to cry. I don't want to be emotional in front of them. I need to be strong for my kids. You know what's really strong, Jeffrey, is being able to cry, saying, I really miss your mom. I really miss your dad. I wish they were here with us. This is hard for me, too. And then you dry your tears and you get up and you do the thing that needs to be done. You help with homework. You make dinner. And that is how we show our kids we can have hard, 
heavy emotions and we can still I, I, I think live that's a life. So powerful. I again I, I point back to my case study. I wish my grandparents had cried openly in front of me yes. and said because then it would have been this community sense of our family misses Shirley. Yes. Together but at the same time we're gonna we're gonna move forward with some function now. Yeah. We, we're crying. We can't deny the pain, but concomitantly, you know, I gotta go to yeah. work. Right. That but, would have been just Again, I'm not blaming it, but I just think to your point, yeah. that's the leadership yeah. that people can show through that most difficult period, particularly exactly. as it as it just happened. Well, and you know? again, your grandparents were following the best advice of the time. Of course. Yeah. But right. now we know if we can show hard feelings and we can show that we can still function in, in, in the wake of those hard feelings yeah. as best we can, nothing's perfect then we are really helping our kids out. Yeah, and I just expressed and showed and demonstrated my model, not judging it. I'm just telling what happened mm-hmm. because maybe folks can learn something from that or glean something from that. Got about 30 seconds again. Jade Bach, it has been a pleasure. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. Your contact information, please. Children'sGrief.org, 505-323-0478. Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria. It's been a pleasure to have you, Jade. Love to have you back and learn more as you unfurl. Uh, the process of your new building and, and new facility. Again, folks, thanks for tuning in. Jeffrey Candelaria, Straight Talk with Jeffrey Candelaria.